Section 65 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Christ's Public Entry into Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loosen them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitude that went before, and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. These verses contain a very remarkable passage in our Lord Jesus Christ's life. They describe his public entry into Jerusalem, when he came there for the last time, before he was crucified. There is something peculiarly striking in this incident in our Lord's history. The narrative reads like the account of some royal conqueror's return to his own city. A very great multitude accompanies him in a kind of triumphal procession. Loud cries and expressions of praise are heard around him. All the city was moved. The whole transaction is singularly at variance with the past tenor of our Lord's life. It is curiously unlike the ways of him who did not cry, nor strive, nor let his voice be heard in the streets, who withdrew himself from the multitude on other occasions, and said to those he healed, See thou say nothing to any man. Mark chapter 1 verse 44 And yet the whole transaction admits of explanation. The reasons of this public entry are not hard to find out. Let us see what they were. The plain truth is that our Lord knew well that the time of his earthly ministry was drawing to a close. He knew that the hour was approaching when he must finish the mighty work he came to do by dying for our sins on the cross. He knew that his last journey had been accomplished, and that there remained nothing now in his earthly ministry but to be offered as a sacrifice on Calvary. Knowing all this, he no longer, as in time past, sought secrecy. Knowing all this, he thought it good to enter the place where he was to be delivered to death, with peculiar solemnity and publicity. It was not fitting that the Lamb of God should come to be slain on Calvary privately and silently. Before the great sacrifice for the sins of the world was offered up, 
it was right that every eye should be fixed on the victim. It was suitable that the crowning act of our Lord's life should be done with as much notoriety as possible. Therefore it was that he made this public entry. Therefore it was that he attracted to himself the eyes of the wandering multitude. Therefore it was that all Jerusalem was moved. The atoning blood of the Lamb of God was about to be shed. The deed was not to be done in a corner. Acts chapter 26, verse 26. It is good to remember these things. The real meaning of our Lord's conduct at this period of his history is not sufficiently considered by many readers of this passage. It remains for us to consider the practical lessons which these verses appear to point out. In the first place, let us notice in these verses an example of our Lord Jesus Christ's perfect knowledge. He sends his two disciples into a village. He tells them that they will there find the ass on which he was to ride. He provides them with an answer to the inquiry of those to whom the ass belonged. He tells them that on giving that answer the ass will be sent. And all happens exactly as he foretells. There is nothing hid from the Lord's eyes. There are no secrets with him. Alone or in company, by night or by day, in private or in public, he is acquainted with all our ways. He that saw Nathaniel under the fig tree is unchanged. Go where we will, and retire from the world as we may, we are never out of sight of Christ. This is a thought that ought to exercise a restraining and sanctifying effect on our souls. We all know the influence which the presence of the rulers of this world has upon their subjects. Nature itself teaches us to put a check on our tongues, and demeanor, and behavior, when we are under the eye of a king. The sense of our Lord Jesus Christ's perfect knowledge of all our ways ought to have the same effect on our hearts. Let us do nothing we would not like Christ to see, and say nothing we would not like Christ to hear. Let us seek to live, and move, and have our being under a continual recollection of Christ's presence, let us behave as we would have done had we walked beside him, in the company of James and John, by the Sea of Galilee. This is the way to be trained for heaven. In heaven we shall ever be with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 In the second place, let us notice in these verses an example of the manner in which prophecies concerning our Lord's first coming were fulfilled. We are told that his public entry fulfilled the words of Zechariah, Thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass. It appears that this prediction was literally and exactly fulfilled. The words which the prophet spake by the Holy Ghost received no figurative accomplishment. As he said, so it came to pass. As he foretold, so it was done. Five hundred and fifty years had passed away since the prediction was made, and then, when the appointed time arrived, the long-promised Messiah did literally ride into Zion on an ass. No doubt the vast majority of the inhabitants of Jerusalem saw nothing in the circumstance. The veil was upon their hearts. But we are not left in doubt as to the fulfillment of the prophecy. We are told plainly, all this was done that it might be fulfilled. 
from the fulfilment of god's word in time past we are surely intended to gather something as to the manner of its fulfilment in time to come we have a right to expect that prophecies respecting the second advent of christ will be as literally fulfilled as those respecting his first advent he came to this earth literally in person the first time he will come to this earth literally in person the second time he came in humiliation once literally to suffer he will come again in glory literally to reign every prediction respecting things accompanying his first advent was literally accomplished it will be just the same when he returns all that is foretold about the restoration of the jews the judgments on the ungodly the unbelief of the world the gathering of the elect shall be made good to the letter let us not forget this in the study of unfulfilled prophecy a fixed principle of interpretation is of the first importance finally let us notice in these verses a striking example of the worthlessness of man's favor of all the multitudes who crowded round our lord as he entered jerusalem none stood by him when he was delivered into the hands of wicked men many cried hosanna who four days after cried away with him crucify him but this is a faithful picture of human nature this is a proof of the utter folly of thinking more of the praise of man than the praise of god nothing in truth is so fickle and uncertain as popularity it is here to-day and gone to-morrow it is a sandy foundation and sure to fail those who build upon it let us not care for it let us seek the favor of him who is the same yesterday and to-day and for ever hebrews chapter thirteen verse eight christ never changes those whom he loves he loves to the end his favor endureth for ever end of section sixty five section sixty six of expository thoughts on the gospel of st matthew by j c ryle chapter twenty one verses twelve to twenty two christ casting the buyers and sellers out of the temple the barren fig tree matthew chapter twenty one verses twelve to twenty two and jesus went into the temple of god and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and he said unto them it is written my house shall be called the house of prayer but ye have made it into a den of thieves and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them and when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying hosanna to the son of david they were sore displeased and said unto him hearest thou what these say and jesus saith unto them yea have ye never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise and he left them and went out of the city into bethany and he lodged there now in the morning as he returned into the city he hungered and when he saw a fig tree in the way he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it let no fruit grow on thee henceforward for ever and presently the fig tree withered away 
And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith, and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also, if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. We have in these verses an account of two remarkable events in our Lord's history. In both, there was something eminently figurative and typical. Each was an emblem of spiritual things. Beneath the surface of each lie lessons of solemn instruction. The first event that demands our attention is our Lord's visit to the temple. He found his father's house in a state which too truly shadowed forth the great condition of the whole Jewish church, everything out of order and out of course. He found the courts of that holy building disgracefully profaned by worldly transactions. Trading, and buying, and selling, were actually going on within its walls. There stood dealers ready to supply the Jew who came in from distant countries with any sacrifice he wanted. There sat the money-changer, ready to change his foreign money for the current coin of the land. Bullocks, and sheep, and goats, and pigeons, were there exposed for sale, as if the place had been a market. The jingling of money might there be heard, as if these holy courts had been a bank or an exchange. Such were the scenes that met our Lord's eyes. He saw it all with holy indignation. He cast out all of them that sold and bought. He overthrew the tables of the money-changers. Resistance there was none, for men knew that he was right. Objection there was none, for all felt that he was only reforming a notorious abuse, which had been basely permitted for the sake of gain. Well might he sound in the ears of the astonished traders as they fled from the temple, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Let us see in our Lord's conduct on this occasion a striking type of what he will do when he comes again the second time. He will purify his visible church as he purified the temple. He will cleanse it from everything that defiles and works iniquity, and cast every worldly professor out of its pale. He will allow no worshipper of money or lover of gain to have a place in that glorious temple which he will finally exhibit before the world. May we all strive to live in the daily expectation of that coming. May we judge ourselves that we be not condemned and cast out in that searching, sifting day. We should often study those words of Malachi, Who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 The second event that demands our attention in these verses is our Lord's curse upon the fruitless fig tree. We are told that being hungry, he came to a fig tree in the way, and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward for ever. And presently the fig tree withered away. 
This is an incident almost without parallel in all our Lord's ministry. It is almost the only occasion on which we find him making one of his creatures suffer in order to teach a spiritual truth. There was a heart-searching lesson in that withered fig tree. It preaches a sermon we shall all do well to hear. That fig tree, full of leaves but barren of fruit, was a striking emblem of the Jewish church when our Lord was upon earth. The Jewish church had everything to make an outward show. It had the temple, the priesthood, the daily service, the yearly feasts, the Old Testament scriptures, the courses of the Levites, the morning and evening sacrifice. But beneath these goodly leaves, the Jewish church was utterly destitute of fruit. It had no grace, no faith, no love, no humility, no spirituality, no real holiness, no willingness to receive its Messiah. John chapter 1 verse 11. And hence, like the fig tree, the Jewish church was soon to wither away. It was to be stripped of all its outward ornaments, and its members scattered over the face of the earth. Jerusalem was to be destroyed. The temple was to be burned. The daily sacrifice was to be taken away. The tree was to wither away to the very ground. And so it came to pass. Never was there a type so literally fulfilled. In every wandering Jew we see a branch of the fig tree that was crushed. But we may not stop here. We may find even more instruction in the event we are now considering. These things were written for our sakes, as well as for the Jews. Is not every fruitless branch of Christ's visible church in an awful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? Beyond doubt it is. High ecclesiastical profession, without holiness among a people, overweening confidence in councils, bishops, liturgies, and ceremonies, while repentance and faith have been neglected, have ruined many a visible church in time past, and may yet ruin many more. Where are the once famous churches of Ephesus, and Sardis, and Carthage, and Hippo? They are all gone. They had leaves, but no fruit. Our Lord's curse came upon them. They became withered fig trees. The decree went forth, Hew them down, Daniel chapter 4, verse 23. Let us remember this. Let us beware of church pride. Let us not be high-minded, but fear. Romans chapter 2, verse 20. Finally, is not every fruitless professor of Christianity in awful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? There can be no doubt of it. So long as a man is content with the leaves of religion, with a name to live while he is dead, and a form of godliness without the power. So long his soul is in great peril. So long as he is satisfied with going to church or chapel, and receiving the Lord's Supper, and being called a Christian, while his heart is not changed, and his sin not forsaken, so long he is daily provoking God to cut him off without a remedy. Fruit. Fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is the only sure proof that we are savingly united to Christ and in the way to heaven. May this sink down into our hearts and never be forgotten. End of section 66 
Section 67 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. Christ's reply to the Pharisees demanding his authority. The two sons. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and said, by what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which, if ye tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven, or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did you not then believe him? But if we shall say, Of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus, and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first, and said, Son, go work to-day in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not but afterward he repented, and went. And he came to the second, and said likewise, and he answered, and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe him. These verses contain a conversation between our Lord Jesus Christ and the chief priests and elders of the people. Those bitter enemies of all righteousness saw the sensation which the public entry into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple had produced. At once they came about our Lord like bees, and endeavored to find occasion for an accusation against him. Let us observe, in the first place, how ready the enemies of truth are to question the authority of all who do more good than themselves. The chief priests had not a word to say about our Lord's teaching. They make no charge against the lives or conduct of himself or his followers. The point on which they fasten is his commission— by what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? The same charge has often been made against the servants of God when they have striven to check the progress of ecclesiastical corruption. It is the old engine by which the children of this world have often labored to stop the progress of revivals and reformations. It is the weapon which was often brandished in the face of the reformers, the Puritans, and the Methodists of the last century. It is the poisoned arrow which is often shot at city missionaries and lay agents in the present day. Too many care nothing for the manifest blessing of God on man's work, so long as he is not sent forth by their own sect or party. It matters nothing to them that some humble laborer in God's harvest can point to numerous conversions of souls through his instrumentality. They still cry, By what authority doest thou these things? His success is nothing. 
They demand his commission. His cures are nothing. They want his diploma. Let us neither be surprised nor moved when we hear such things. It is the old charge which was brought against Christ himself. There is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 Let us observe, in the second place, the consummate wisdom with which our Lord replied to the question put to him. His enemies had asked him for his authority for doing what he did. They doubtless intended to make his answer a handle for accusing him. He knew the drift of their inquiry, and said, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven, or of men? We must distinctly understand that in this answer of our Lord's there was no evasion. To suppose this is a great mistake. The counter-question which he asked was in reality an answer to his enemy's inquiry. He knew they dared not deny that John the Baptist was a man sent from God. He knew that, this being granted, he needed only to remind them of John's testimony to himself. Had not John declared him to be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? Had not John pronounced him to be the Mighty One who was to baptize with the Holy Ghost? In short, our Lord's question was a home-thrust to the conscience of his enemies. If they once conceded the divine authority of John the Baptist's mission, they must also concede the divinity of his own. If they acknowledged that John came from heaven, they must acknowledge that he himself was the Christ. Let us pray that, in this difficult world, we may be supplied with the same kind of wisdom which was here displayed by our Lord. No doubt we ought to act on the injunction of St. Peter, and be always ready to give a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and with fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 We ought to shrink from no inquiry into the principles of our holy religion, and to be ready at any time to defend and explain our practice. But for all this, we must never forget that wisdom is profitable to direct, and that we should strive to speak wisely in defense of a good cause. The words of Solomon deserve consideration. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. In the last place, let us observe in these verses what immense encouragement our Lord holds out to those who repent. We see this strikingly brought out in the parable of the two sons. Both were told to go and work in their father's vineyard. One son, like the profligate publicans, for some time flatly refused obedience, but afterwards repented and went. The other, like the formal Pharisees, pretended willingness to go, but in reality went not. Whither of them twain, says our Lord, did the will of his father? Even his enemies were obliged to reply, the first. Let it be a settled principle in our Christianity, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely willing to receive penitent sinners. It matters nothing what a man has been in times past. Does he repent and come to Christ? Then old things are passed away, and all things are become new. It matters nothing how high and self-confident a man's profession of religion may be. Does he really give up his sins? If not, 
His profession is abominable in God's sight, and he himself is still under the curse. Let us take courage ourselves, if we have been great sinners hitherto. Only let us repent and believe in Christ, and there is hope. Let us encourage others to repent. Let us hold the door wide open to the very chief of sinners. Never will that word fail. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 End of section 67 Section 68 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 21, verses 33 to 46 Parable of the Wicked Husbandman Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46 Here another parable. There was a certain householder, which planted a vineyard, and hedged it round about, and digged a winepress in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. The parable contained in these verses was spoken with special reference to the Jews. They are the husbandmen described here. Their sins are set before us here as in a picture. Of this there can be no doubt. It is written that he spake of them. But we must not flatter ourselves that this parable contains nothing for the Gentiles. There are lessons laid down for us as well as for the Jew. Let us see what they are. We see, in the first place, what distinguishing privileges God is pleased to bestow on some nations. He chose Israel to be a peculiar people to himself. He separated them from the other nations of the earth, and bestowed on them countless blessings. He gave them revelations of himself, while all the rest of the earth was in darkness. He gave them the law and the covenants, 
and the oracles of God, while all the world beside was let alone. In short, God dealt with the Jews as a man deals with a piece of land which he fences out and cultivates, while all the fields around are left untilled and waste. The vineyard of the Lord was the house of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 And have we no privileges? Beyond doubt we have many. We have the Bible, and liberty for every one to read it. We have the gospel, and permission to every one to hear it. We have spiritual mercies in abundance, of which five hundred millions of our fellow men know nothing at all. How thankful we ought to be! The poorest man in England may say every morning, There are five hundred millions of immortal souls worse off than I am. Who am I, that I should differ? Bless the Lord, O my soul! We see, in the next place, what a bad use nations sometimes make of their privileges. When the Lord separated the Jews from other people, he had a right to expect that they would serve him and obey his laws. When a man has taken pains with a vineyard, he has a right to expect fruit. But Israel rendered not a due return for all God's mercies. They mingled with the heathen and learned their works. They hardened themselves in sin and unbelief. They turned aside after idols. They kept not God's ordinances, they despised God's temple. They refused to listen to his prophets. They ill-used those whom he sent to call them to repentance. And finally they brought their wickedness to a height by killing the Son of God himself, even Christ the Lord. And what are we doing ourselves with our privileges? Truly that is a serious question, and one that ought to make us think. It may well be feared that we are not, as a nation, living up to our light, or walking worthy of our many mercies, must we not confess with shame that millions amongst us seem utterly without God in the world? Must we not acknowledge that in many a town and in many a village Christ seems hardly to have any disciple, and the Bible seems hardly to be believed? It is vain to shut our eyes to these facts. The fruit that the Lord receives from his vineyard in Great Britain compared with what it ought to be, is disgracefully small. It may well be doubted whether we are not as provoking to him as the Jews. We see in the next place what an awful reckoning God sometimes has with nations and churches which make a bad use of their privileges. A time came when the long-suffering of God toward the Jews had an end. Forty years after our Lord's death, the cup of their iniquity was at length full, and they received a heavy chastisement for their many sins. Their holy city, Jerusalem, was destroyed. Their temple was burned. They themselves were scattered over the face of the earth. The kingdom of God was taken from them, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And will the same thing ever happen to us? Will the judgments of God ever come down on this nation of England, because of her unfruitfulness under so many mercies? Who can tell? We may well cry with the prophet, Lord God, thou knowest. We only know that judgments have come on many a church and nation in the last eighteen hundred years. The kingdom of God has been taken from the African churches. The Mohatmatan power has overwhelmed most of the churches of the East. At all events, 
it becomes believers to intercede much on behalf of our country. Nothing offends God so much as neglect of privileges. Much has been given to us, and much will be required. We see, in the last place, the power of conscience even in wicked men. The chief priests and elders at last discovered that our Lord's parable was specially meant for themselves. The point of its closing words was too sharp to be escaped. They perceived that he spake of them. There are many hearers of the gospel in every congregation who are exactly in the condition of these unhappy men. They know that what they hear Sunday after Sunday is all true. They know that they are wrong themselves, and that every sermon condemns them. But they have neither will nor courage to acknowledge this. They are too proud and too fond of the world to confess their past mistakes, and to take up the cross and follow Christ. Let us all beware of this awful state of mind. The last day will prove that there was more going on in the consciences of hearers than was at all known to preachers. Thousands and ten thousands will be found, like the chief priests, to have been convicted by their own conscience, and yet to have died unconverted. End of section 68